What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. And today we have a very special guest. Dave, take it away. Yeah, we're extremely excited to have our next guest on here. Uh, to be perfectly honest, we don't know if uh, this episode is going to air as a shooting the professional shit or a regular guest interview. Um, as uh, our next guest, you know, in my opinion, has um, has a professional title as it gets. We have uh, Dr. George Photopolis. Excellent. You, do, you got it right, Dave. Perfect pronunciation. I, I may have asked someone for a little bit of help on that, to be honest. I think I know who you asked. <laughs> George, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my honor and my pleasure, Mark. So most times when we have guests on, uh, we kind of get them to share a bit about their story. Um, you know, it's your story to share. So whatever you feel comfortable with sharing, by all means, just take it away. Um, so if you'd like to get started, uh, sure. take it away. Uh, at the risk of sounding boring, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do a drunk log of, of, of every, every blow by blow uh, uh, disaster or catastrophe or, or awesome stuff. But I, I'll share uh, the highlights, or at least some of the things that define uh, who George is, right? And uh, uh, first and foremost, I'm an addict uh, and an alcoholic. Um, and my claim dates December the 9th, 2008. I'm addicted to the benzodiazepines, the amphetamines, and the opiates. When I work, I work as a family doc in downtown Toronto, and I'm a proud dad of two incredible young women, uh, Boo Boo and Wee Wee, or Stephanie and Melanie. Uh, but Boo Boo and Wee Wee is how I, what I call them. And um, I, I'm incredibly lucky to be here tonight. And, and I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, that what I just said, I, I've, I, I say every Wednesday when I attend a support group for doctors in recovery, uh, that I've been attending for the last 14 years, 13 and a half years of my life in recovery. But it didn't start there, right? Uh, it started where I was born and it started uh, before I was born. And, um, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm the oldest of two, two brothers and uh, I grew up uh, in a very poor uh, family, uh, immigrant family from Greece. My dad uh, was a World War II vet um, and uh, he was an alcoholic, God bless him. And uh, he married my mom, and uh, she tried to she tried to set him straight, and and uh, he kept her hostage for most of their lives. Um, uh, so my dad was a cook, and my mom was a cleaning lady. And uh, I have a little brother. He's not little anymore. He's a year younger than me. And um, we grew up in Parkdale in Toronto. Um, uh, a pretty rough time. Now it's gentrified, but back then it was pretty rough to grow up there and um, very poor, like I said, a very uh, simple family. Uh, we grew up in the restaurant business. The first half of my career, I've done every job in, that you can imagine. First half of my life, I, I grew up uh, washing dishes from a little kid and, and uh, went up from there till um, um, I started working in other places. Uh, ultimately, uh, my family unit was uh, one that 
it was a traditional old fashioned one. Uh, my father was the head of the family. He was a tough guy. And uh, it was, a, like I said, he was an army veteran. He ran around the back hills of Greece uh, during World War II and, and a vicious civil war um, um, uh, after World War II. So he ran around with a machine gun for literally 10 years from the ages of 21 to 31. You can imagine that. And uh, as a result of that, he, he, he lived like every day was his last day because it could have been. And, and that defined him and that, that really affected him. And, and, and he came to Canada in 1954 and, and he met my mom and, and they got married and, and, and uh, along I came. And then my brother Peter came along about a year after that. And then um, my, my mom was like the saint of the family. Uh, she she uh, took care of the house and, and, and the guys grew up and it was a pretty rough and tumble place that we grew up in. And um, at the end of the day, I, I remember I, I talk about when did I first drink? I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, 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 and basically I'm addicted to anything that would change my mood and my mind in a very quick hurry, eh? Anything, uh, that's me. I'm addicted to more, right? <laughs> so if anybody's heard that one before, and, and uh, more of anything. So the first time I drank, uh, I drank six beers and I was 10 years old. And uh, I don't remember much after that, but I know that I drank six beers and my dad gave me permission to drink six beers. And uh, what it did for me as I started to grow up was alcohol and later drugs, they basically numbed me out. Um, for me, it was a bit of a social lubricant. I was awkward. Um, um, my first language wasn't English, it was Greek. And, and I was kind of embarrassed about my poverty. And, and, and uh, a lot of kids would go to camp and school and you come back from school from summer school from summer and everybody's talking about the camp and, and oh, uh, and, and I, I went to dishwashing camp, right? Uh, I worked in the restaurants and, and washed dishes for the summer. And that was kind of like a sexy type of story. Uh, I, I never went to camp and things like that. So that made me feel uh, awkward. It made me feel like I didn't belong uh, when I was growing up. When I uh, got a little bit bigger, I, 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 I got pretty strong and I became an athlete and I was a football player. Now there, there's, a, there's an opportunity to cause some mayhem, right? Uh, as as a, as an addict alcoholic <clears throat> it's the only kind of uh, sport you can have aside from hockey where you can assault people and get patted on the back for right so i did that for a while and i, I bullied my way through high school um, uh, with respect to athletics and, and then went to university of toronto um, i went to u of t and, and when i was there uh, i played football and and i met my my first wife uh, my daughter's mom, and uh, we fell in love when we had two beautiful little girls. And, um, and then um, a whole bunch of stuff happened. Uh, I started seeing how much alcohol and drugs was going on in my life. I, um, 
uh, it was really important for me to drink. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy, I'm a he-man, like I'm one of these traditional guys that you drink and you carry on and you're not, you're not afraid of anything. Uh, what I found was alcohol was uh, false courage for me. Uh, it made me not afraid. And, and I can tell you about how I learned. Uh, my favorite definition of addiction is uh, addiction is a disease of feelings. And I, I, my biggest feeling was fear. I was afraid of everything. Anything and everything I'm afraid of. The only difference in recovery now is that I'm aware of it and it's okay. Uh, but back then I was afraid to be afraid. So I was a tough guy and big mouth and, and loud and, um, and uh, I would drink and it would make somehow things feel easier to do. Uh, when I started moving up the ranks in training in university and medical school, um, I, uh, there's a big party scene, a big drinking scene. Uh, if you don't go out drinking with the guys at any given time, then you're not part of the group and so forth. So it was a little bit of pressure. You didn't have to twist my arm, man. I was one of the first ones there. Uh, so, um, I did that. So alcohol was a big thing in my life from a little kid. And I, I noticed its strength. It, it changed things for me. It made things more tolerable, more less more, less difficult, if I can put it that way. So um, I, I got older. I uh, graduated, um, started working in a clinic. Family started growing up, and and, and unfortunately, uh, ended up with some marital problems which ended up in, in divorce. And, and uh, that was huge for me. Um, uh, I ended up uh, becoming very, very sad and very, very scared, right? Uh, um, uh, nobody divorced in my family. And here I am, the oldest of two kids and I'm supposed to be leading the way, at least that's what I was taught. And I'm not supposed to be afraid. And, and meanwhile, I'm petrified inside. And I'm also angry. Right. And, and uh, anger is a, a combination feeling of fear and sadness. Uh, I'm either afraid of something or I'm sad about something. Well, I was afraid and I was a, and I was sad. And uh, for the next three years, as a separated man and ultimately as a divorced man, I tried to prove that I'm a guy. And, and, and uh, I, I partied and I did, I practiced high risk behavior and I, I lied when the truth would do. And I convinced the world that I was okay. And inside I was dying. Inside, I was melting away into nothing. Um, as a football player, had lots of different injuries. Uh, I could get a hold of narcotics, right? And uh, it was not... A, it was an easy step when my family doctor gave me some some Percocets, which is powerful forms of Tylenol three uh, uh, for my tooth pain or for my wrist arthritis or for my knee problems or my back problems. I quickly discovered that it would also numb my my feelings of fear and sadness. And guess what? Didn't take long before I started taking drugs to not feel, not the physical pain, but the emotional pain, right? And um, so from 1999, when, when we got separated, 
until 2002, I went, I went from really not using prescription drugs at all. I never did street drugs, but doesn't matter. I had, I did a lot of uh, uh, prescription drugs and, and, uh, cause I have access to them or I had access to them over those three years. Um, uh, I remember it starting, um, but I was a traditional guy. I'd, I'd have a couple of beers with barbecue with the girls in the backyard and, and, and the Saturdays would be kind of cool. Maybe a cigar and a little bit of wine and some port on the, on the deck on a Saturday night that wasn't the end of the world. And then all hell broke loose. And, uh, before I know it, um, uh, I'm uh, abusing narcotics. I, if anybody knows anything about Percocet, which was one of my drugs of choice, um, about one Percocet is equal to about to about three to five Tylenol threes of pain control. At the height of my addiction, which lasted from about 2001 or two until 2007, eight, I averaged at the height of my addiction, 90 Percocets a day. Uh, 90 Percocets a day, 90 Percocets would kill all of us if we all took it right now. Uh, but in order to, you can't take that stuff and, and stay awake, right? So I would take amphetamines to stay awake. Hey, why not? Hey, uh, so um, I, I try and use chemicals to uh, numb myself and not feel. I used chemicals to try and get energy for the side effects of the narcotics. And then I'd come home and I uh, couldn't fall asleep. So I'd take some benzos with vodka, right? Of course, because that will help me fall asleep. So I thought I had solved the, my problem, my emotional problem. Yeah, the world didn't love me. I'm by myself. Uh, I, I don't see my children as often as I think I should. My life is a disaster. Uh, my passion of becoming a doctor was out the window. Life was a catastrophe. My practice was disintegrating in front of my eyes. Patients were leaving. I was lying. I was making up for my shortcomings, right? I'd fall asleep, couldn't get up after wake, being awake for three days. And um, it got very dark. It got very bad. My mother died in 2004 and I was I was in active addiction when she died. Um, um, that, that's not great. Uh, my dad had died many years before that. Uh, so uh, the height of my addiction, I basically used substances to control my feelings and my mood and, and basically deal with my fear. I was afraid of everything. Um, it was only a matter of time I truly believed that I would, I was going to die. Uh, I would, I would, I would uh, lie asleep at night. I grew up a Greek Orthodox kid, right? I have no problem believing in God. I'm a big 12 step guy. I go to AA. Uh, I believe in abstinence based recovery. Um, that's what works for me. Okay. I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it, but that's what works for me and has worked for me. So I, I'd go to bed and um, I'd calculate my life was so terrible at the time I felt that my life was over. It wasn't worth living. I'd calculate how much medication I should take to overdose and stop breathing. And I'd take it. 
I'd take it and I'd lie in bed and I'm like, oh, oh no, oh crap. I'm going to overdose. I'm going to die. And automatically I'm thinking, well, if, if there is a God and if I overdose, that's a sin. I'm committing suicide. I'm going to hell. What am I going to do to save my ass? So what I would do in my fit of, of, of madness at that moment is I would take my Bible, true story. I would take my Bible and I, I planned, well, you know what, if, if I die with my Bible in my hand, uh, when, when there is a fight between devil and God or the angels and the, and the, and, and the, and the demons over my soul, if they see I have a Bible in my hands as I passed out and overdosed, maybe I'd be spared emotionally or spiritually. That's the battle that I fought when I would on purpose try and kill myself. I did that about 200 times in my active addiction. And, 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 I, and I'd wake up in the morning and I'd feel dreadful because it didn't work. And then I'd have to face my life again. That's how bad it was for me. Nothing was great. Everything was crap. It was only a matter of time before I succeeded in what I wanted to do. So what the hell happened? Uh, why am I still here? Well, um, uh, we had, I, I co-owned a clinic with my best friend, a family doc that I met. Uh, we met each other in undergrad at U of T. He's a saint. He's an angel. He's one of my angels. He stuck by me. I wouldn't have stuck by me, but he did. God, God bless him. And uh, uh, we own this clinic, which has been around for 93 years now in Toronto, which is a huge honor. Um, and um, and uh, we had a receptionist. And this receptionist, um, uh, through a party, uh, through a, a Thanksgiving party, and I was supposed to bring the food for the barbecue. The party was supposed to start at six o'clock. I showed up at 11 o'clock at night because guess what, right? Like I'm stoned and drunk and passing out. And I made it, I made it five hours late and uh, did the barbecue people ate. And then I had this huge confrontation with her. Uh, she accused me of some things. At the end of the day, she basically reported me to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Uh, and um, she saved my life. Since then, I've thanked her a million times, taken her out for dinner, and she saved my life. This was an angel, another angel for me. So she reported me to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and then the college came calling. And I knew it was only a matter of time before I got busted, because I'd, I'd self all of this stuff is public knowledge, by the way. Uh, it, I, 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 had, I was self-prescribing. I was... Uh, I, I was the catastrophe. Um, they uh, um, they started their investigation in the fall, November-ish of 2007. Um, I lied halfway through, right? I tried to minimize my use, but I, I knew it was only a matter of time. And, and, and Stephanie and Melanie were going uh, with their mom to Florida for Christmas. Um, that year, and I had in my possession during this investigation, I hadn't stopped using yet. 
So, but I felt the noose getting tighter and tighter around my neck. It was only a matter of time before everybody found out what was going on, um, before the college did. And, um, and Stefan Mal uh, went to Florida and I kissed them goodbye in the Christmas time of 2007. And in my possession, as any good addict uh, is, uh, I had a good two week supply of my stuff, right? We don't run out of our stuff, right? We keep our stuff, we gotta have it around. So I had enough, enough drugs to, to kill a, a million people, a ton of people anyway, uh, uh, in my possession. So I, I locked myself in my condo, said goodbye to my children, and, you know, guys, I don't know what happened. Um, I had all these pills. And for some reason, something came over me. In December of 2007. And instead of taking them all. I flushed everything down the toilet. And then, of course, I went through the withdrawal to end all withdrawals. And I'm not going to go get help because I'm afraid. And I've got a big ego. And I've got lots of arrogance. And I'm ashamed. So I sat in that condo and I went through withdrawal over the next 20 days. Benzodiazepine withdrawal can take up to three or four weeks. Alcohol withdrawal, not so much, right? The first couple of days are dangerous. But I was coming off the benzos. Uh, it, was a it was like I was on all these drugs. And um, uh, I'll never, I can write a book on withdrawal. I went through, uh, I should have been under in medical detox, right? I never tell my patients to do this stuff, but that was me. I was afraid, I was ashamed. So I lived, for some reason I survived that, that, that and um, the college came along in January and I was, I was clean for about a week or two completely and they said they did their investigation and they said you have an addiction disorder I'm, and i'm like no i don't i'm fine i just stopped everything and, and they're like well you know what you don't know anything about recovery and i'm like you are right about that so uh they basically threatened to suspend me and take my license away if i didn't follow the rules and the rules for a doctor with an addiction disorder, now it's called a substance use disorder. That's the proper terms for it before. I like the word alcoholic and addict. It's more my style and it more, it hits home. It really, it grabs me because that's, that's what I am. So they said to me, you got to join the physician's health program. The physician's health program is run by the Ontario Medical Association, uh, originally run by a, a recovering addict, Dr. Michael Kaufman, who's a dear friend of mine now. Uh, lied to him at the beginning too, tried to minimize my use. He saw right through me. Uh, they basically wanted me to sign a five-year contract where they focused on, I had to attend, I had to go to rehab. I had to do a six week, a five week inpatient treatment program, come out and then I'd sign a five-year contract where I would do random urinary drug screens and hair samples for five years. I would attend 12-step meetings. I would have my a new family doc 
I'd have a psychiatrist, I'd have an addictionologist uh, do all the work in AA. And if I passed through all that and gave up my right to prescribe controlled substances, because those are the things that I was addicted to, uh, then I could have my uh, freedom to practice medicine again. And I did. I did all of that. I, I, I was pulled kicking and screaming to Homewood Mental Health Center in Guelph, Ontario. My clean date is December the 9th, 2008. I went through withdrawal the year before, but it, I was so stubborn. It took them a year to get me to go to rehab. I didn't want to go. Who wants to go there, right? Give me a break. So went there. Um, and that's when my recovery actually started. For the year before that, I was just a dry drunk. I was just not using. I didn't know anything about recovery. Just I was just white knuckling it the whole time. So I entered Homewood Mental Health Center, not wanting to go, not wanting to be there. Um, spent five weeks there, started to learn about some stuff about recovery, attended my first AA meeting there. Um, and the magic started. Uh, I met my second wife there. We didn't start dating until seven years later. Uh, but I'll tell you a funny story. The first day of admission, okay, December the 9th, 2008. Here I am. My life has been blown apart. I'm lucky to be alive, right? They're giving me the second chance. Okay, George, go this way. Go to rehab. Follow the rules, right? And you got a shot right? So here I go, and I'm sitting in Homewood, and the day that I get there is the graduation day for all the inpatients to graduate the program, and I'm hiding in the shadows because I'm mortified that I'm in this, I'm like, give me a break. What am I doing there? I'm this, you know, this upstanding doctor of society, and I'm, here I am in a mental institution, and it's, I'm embarrassed, and I'm ashamed, and, and I feel terrible, and and um, uh, these people graduate and, and the medical director stands up and this guy's name is Harry Vitalago, who's now a dear friend of mine too. And, and Harry stands up and he says to all the people in the crowd, he says, okay, all you guys are inpatients. Uh, all you guys are inpatients. Uh, does anybody have any problems with, with, with the program? You can speak up now, we have a forum, it's just us. And I'm not going to say anything. I've been admitted for all of four hours, right? What do I know about this program? I just want to get out of there. I'm hiding in the back. And I hear this woman's voice. I hear this woman's voice and she's complaining about everything. And she's like, you call yourselves a world-class institution and ah, you guys are terrible and blah, 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 and going on and on. And I'm like, I got to see who this is. And I look down and I see down and I see the most beautiful blonde I've ever seen in my life. And I said to myself, now, George, there's a woman you have to stay away from for the rest of your life. And I married her seven years later, of course. Right. And uh, and uh, we, we did not date when we were there. Uh, we became friends very, very mildly. Ultimately, we dated seven years after discharge and we had an incredible an incredible marriage for a short period of time, but full of life and no regrets about that. But that's that was a kind of a cool thing. So, uh, uh, you know, graduate, uh, come out of Homewood, start my practice again, start from zero. In fact, 
it was less than zero. I was in huge debt. I had the remnants of a practice. Um, and I started living a life of transparency and honesty. I sat down with Stephanie and Melanie and I said to them, I'm never going to lie again. You see, when an act of addiction, I'd lie when the truth would do, right? Right? I was afraid of the truth. Um, and I promised them I was never going to lie again, and they would know everything about me. And uh, I started down this path of recovery. I went to meetings. I did all my step work, got a great sponsor, um, did all the physician's health program stuff, uh, graduated the program, just got out of debt 15 years, like five, what, maybe a year ago, you know, um, um, some people are retiring, like my younger brother, he's like a normal person, he's like an earth person, my brother, right, he, uh, he just retired, I'm just starting off, and, and I'm 58 years old, but I'm grateful to be alive, um, now, what does life look like for George? Well, uh, I now work for the Physician's Health Program, and I co-facilitate uh, a, a support group for doctors in recovery, which I, I, I just finished doing an hour ago every Thursday. Uh, on Wednesdays, I belong to a Caduceus group that I've been, that I've been part of for the last 14 years. Uh, that's for, for support for healthcare professionals. I still attend 12-step meetings. I still have a sponsor. Uh, um, um, I pray. I journal. I help. I never say no for anything in recovery. Um, now, all of a sudden, all these people think I know what I'm talking about. I'm just, I'm just the guy. I'm just like a regular guy uh, that, that uh, was lucky enough and was given the gift of recovery. And, and, and I live this life now of I try to be humble and, and grateful and, and try and live this life of simple, quiet dignity and transparency. Uh, my children are my biggest inspiration, my biggest gift of recovery, my relationship with my girls. Um, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Should be dead many times. I'm still here, I don't know why. Every time they give me a card, they write down, I look forward to growing up with you. I love you. So I'm kind of growing up with them, eh? Um, so that's kind of cool. I'm very grateful for that. Recovery is not easy. It might be simple, but it's not easy. The steps are pretty straightforward, but they're not easy. It takes a lot of work. And, and in recovery, what happened to me? Well, it wasn't all smooth sailing. Uh, a year and a half into recovery, had a brain tumor. Should be dead again. Emergency brain surgery, emergency this, that. Given six months to live. Uh, hey, that was 11 years ago. Um, um, uh, still a full-time member of Princess Margaret Hospital as a patient. Uh, uh, so what a great gift that is. Uh, you know, got married again. Got divorced. Uh, ended up having a major abdominal surgery and lost two feet of my large intestine uh, four years ago. Should be dead again. Um, ended up a year after that getting on a boat and getting on a ship and traveling halfway around the world 
uh, with my wife at the time and, and being grateful that I could do it in recovery. I got to see my children move in with me ultimately at various stages of their lives um, at, while they completed their university. Uh, I, I've made amends to the people in my life, including my first ex-wife, and I, I, I've now got some pretty cool relationships with a lot of these people. Um, my practice is full. I now have doctors that are in early recovery being referred to me. How, the, how lucky am I, right? That's where I'm at right now. Uh, my goal going forward is to keep doing the next right thing, right? And, and keeping it simple. I, I'm a God-fearing Christian and I, and, and I read the Bible and I, uh, I pray a lot. I, I tell people, uh, 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 I tell people, I know a few things. I know that I'm not God and uh, I don't know what God's going to do, but I think it'll be all right. Right. So um, that's my story, guys. Still co-own a clinic in, in Toronto and, and uh, we brought on another associate and, and things are, are heading in the right direction. And uh, I've never been uh, more at peace in my life. I've done a lot of work on my relationships in my life and my relationships with alcohol and drugs. And I've learned about George, more importantly. And, and, and then I get this text, this email from Dave going, hey, uh, can you help us out? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> uh, in traditional AA way, you never say no, right? And, and, um, and, and I'm incredibly grateful to be here today. So that's my, my, my story. And not, there's lots more, obviously, but that's my, uh, my uh, Coles Notes version. You guys are probably too young to know what Coles Notes are, but it's-, it's <laughs> Oh, I do. Do you know, Dave? Oh yeah, those got me through high school. There you go. There, spark Notes now. There you go. So that, yeah. that's, that's the short abridged version of, of George's life and recovery. And uh, uh, today I'm clean and sober. Uh, I still do uh, hair analysis. Uh, I don't have to, but I do. I, I still uh, uh, go to meetings. I still, like I said, have a sponsor. Um, uh, and I try and do as much service work as I can. Um, and, and I'm just grateful to be here. George, thank you so much. You did an amazing job. Um, I, got, I got several questions. I know the guys probably do as well. First one I have is you mentioned addiction being a disease of feelings. So when you like first entered recovery, how were you able to start dealing with your feelings and emotions again? Oh, uh, not easy. Eh? Uh, 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 I was, I was afraid. Um, I, I was uh, angry and anger, fear and sadness, like I said, Mark. And, and, and um, at the beginning, it was very difficult. Uh, one of the best ways that I knew that I learned because I wasn't one of these people that told people how I felt, right? I suffered in silence. Uh, and this disease is a disease. This disease is like an isolation thing, right? Uh, we isolate when we're in active addiction. And in early recovery, it was very difficult for me to deal with these feelings. And what I'm supposed to do is share my feelings with people. I never learned how to do that. 
right? Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, now I have all these feelings happening and I can't numb them. So I, I sought professional help. Uh, I uh, had a psychiatrist. I was put on medication. I did my AA stuff. That was huge. I had a lot of support. A lot of people reached out to me and, and, and they shared their feeling problems. Uh, and I wrote, I also journaled a lot. And um, I went to a psychiatrist for three years. Um, at the beginning, twice a week. Uh, and it helped a lot. And I needed medication to stabilize my mind and my mood at the beginning when it was very, 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 very uncomfortable and chaotic and stressful. W one thing that I'll tell you, uh, Mark, is that I still am afraid, but now it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't bother me. Um, I'm, I'm now much more aware of my feelings and feelings for me are these, uh, they're these gray, very, it's not black and white anymore before it was either right or wrong. Now it's all this gray stuff. So, um, um, it's not something that I can actually put in a little box. I have to start to just get used to feeling these ups and downs and it's okay. Um, but uh, it was, it was, it was self-discovery that I can actually feel. See, before all I did was exist and existing is basically just living without feelings. Right. So uh, I got help and, and I shared a lot. That's what helped my feelings for sure. George, I was curious, you mentioned, you know, the first, that first year of uh, being a, a dry drunk and then going to rehab. Do you remember, was there one thing that, that stuck out for you when you got to rehab or, or was it a group session or anything that uh, you realized, oh, this is the right place, this is where I need to be? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, a, a couple of things happened. On the day of my admission, uh, there was this addiction doctor that admitted me. He's a dear friend of me now. All these guys are my friends now. Back then, I didn't think he was my friend. And, 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 and uh, he took my blood pressure and it was like, I don't know, a thousand. I was ready to explode, right? And, and he goes, why are you upset? And I'm like, why am I upset? Like, I'm, do you see where we are here? Are you nuts? Like, I'm in a mental institution. It says mental health center. I'm, I'm like, this is a disaster. And he goes, why? And, and I said, I said, I said, and so the reason, I'll, let me tell you, it's okay to have humor in all this stuff. And, and we've learned to laugh and celebrate the happiness of being alive, right? But you got to remember, it was emotional back then. It wasn't very funny to me back then. Now it's kind of funny, right? So this guy says to me, what are you upset about? And I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a semi-public femur. I'm mortified. I'm embarrassed. What would people think? And he says to me, since when is it your business what other people think of you? And I'm like, this guy's nuts. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, of course it's my business what other people think of me. That was the state of my mind at that moment in time, Dave. Now when I think about it, when he planted the seed that it's none of my business what anybody thinks of me. That was huge for me. Back then, I didn't get it that much. The most emotional thing that happened to me in rehab 
happened about halfway through. I was in the support group and, and, the, and the addictions counselor who I related with a lot because he had two daughters, three years apart, 10 years older than Steph and Mel. We started talking about parents and relationships and he reminded me of my dad. And I have this, my dad was my hero. I also inherited his genes and I have this crazy relationship with him. I love them to death. Yet, he, in my opinion, he let me down and he, I was afraid of him too. Hey, he beat me, he did all kinds of stuff. And so this guy decides in this group that it's a great idea for me to write a letter to my late father. He says, you gotta make, you gotta, you gotta come clean with your old man. You gotta make an amends. You gotta set, set, set everything clean. So I want you to go, go back to your room tonight and, and write a letter to your father. So I did, and, and, and I wrote an eight-page letter, and um, it took like 10 minutes. I didn't think I could write a letter to my father. My father had been dead for more than 10 years at the time. In my group at that time, it was Christmas time, there were three women in that group with me. There were four of us all together. Uh, and one of them is, uh, and they're all dear friends of mine still, of course, now. One was a nurse, another one was an RCMP police officer, and another one was a camera person for Much Music. You remember Much Music? Remember those days? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so these these younger women were in my group, my little sisters, my little sisters, and here I am, this older guy, and 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 I bring my letter to the meeting, and 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 this guy says, "Read your letter." I'm like, "What?" I go, "Nobody said anything about reading a letter." <laughs> He said, write it. I'm not going to read this thing. He goes, no, no, no. Read the letter. And I started reading the letter to my father. And when I, in those days in recovery, uh, in those circles, I would lean forward and I would get very serious and I'd hunch over and I was reading this, this letter and with every page that I'd finish, I'd drop it to the ground. I never did that before, but it happened that day. So with every completion of what I was telling my old man at the time, it would fall to the ground and then the tears would start to drip onto the pages. And I didn't dare look up because everybody would see me, but you could see the tears dropping on the pages. And the eighth page came up and I'll never forget how I ended it. I said in the letter, I said all kinds of things in that letter, but I ended it with dad, I don't know where you are, but I want you to know that I love you very much and I hope you're okay. And I dropped it to the ground and then I looked up and I looked over at these three women and it looked like somebody had drenched them with a bucket of water. They were all <laughs> crying because they had problems with their dad. And for the first time in my life, I realized I wasn't alone. That there were other people that had a dad that they loved, that they almost worshipped, that was their hero, but they had this horrible relationship with them at the same time. That was huge for me. It meant that I wasn't alone, Dave. And then, and then the addiction counselor said, he said, George, that's a great letter. 
Now take that letter when you get out of here and go to your father's grave and burn it. And that's what I did. That's, that's incredible. They had us do a couple letters when we were at rehab too. All three of us were there together. And I found for myself, that was um, a very good process for me anyway, I found um, mm -hmm. doing that. So uh, it's incredible to hear that. Yeah, that's that was that was an incredible answer. Well, true story. You know, uh, what I found in recovery is I only have to remember one story now. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Do you remember how much energy it would take to remember what I lied about? Oh my God! Right? Like it was a disaster. You didn't know what you said to who and how you said it, and and now I just have to remember one story. Yeah, I, sh I shared a very similar thing at my last meeting like that. Um, I had, a, I had another question for you, George. Sure, sure, Mark. Um, you mentioned that you never did street drugs, right? And right. was there ever a point in your addiction where you kind of justified your use by like saying that, like, you know, at least I'm not doing street drugs or was that ever a thing for you? You know, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. Um, uh, uh, when, as a doctor, uh, uh, we're around medications a lot. We learn how, we learn about them and then we see them and um, it almost made me feel like they weren't that dangerous. It's a, it's a, this is how bad my disease is. So I'm, I've gone, I went to U of T medical school. I'm supposed to be smart. I'm supposed to have learned all this stuff and I'm supposed to know how bad all this stuff is for you, right? Here I am suffering with this disease and I'm convinced that it's okay for other people to think that it's dangerous, but I know what I'm doing, right? What I discovered is addiction is the only disease in its active form that tells me as a sufferer that I'm okay and the rest of the world's messed up. Nothing wrong with me. When I was in its clutches, that's what it did. So, did it make it easier for me? Well, you know, these cute little geometric cylindrical little pills, you know, they weren't like, uh, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't like, I wasn't hiding in the shadows to get them, although I broke the law to get it. That's the truth, right? Did I justify it? Did I make it think that it wasn't that bad? It's a, we, it's a, it's a fabulous, it's, it's an incredible topic because how ironic that I've got this world-class education and insight into the dangers of these things, yet I'm taking enough to drop an elephant and I don't see the danger or I don't care. That's how insane this is. Yeah. That's exactly where it is. So uh, to me, there's no difference. Uh, street drugs, uh, in, in in my circles in, in addiction, when I when I when I uh, check in, we are always expected to talk about our drugs of choice. What were they? And, I, and as I mentioned them at the beginning, um, others uh, they, they didn't appeal to me because the stuff I already had, I could have access to. Right, it was there. I could get it very easily. Um, George, you said that you like used isolated while you used did you have any friends that you used with or did you not have to go through that like leaving friends 
behind phase. I did not use with anybody. Uh, I, I isolated. Uh, I used by myself um, in my own little world. But I did have to ultimately say goodbye to slippery people, places, and things in recovery. And there's a lot of things that I did in active addiction that included some people that I know were not good for me. They would trigger me. They would end with me going down a very bad path. Uh, uh, some of these people were opportunists. They took advantage of me. Um, um, and, and I let them take advantage of me. I didn't know any better. Uh, uh, but I didn't use with anybody. I, I used alone. George, how common is it uh, in like the medical field with doctors and nurses to, you know, suffer in silence because of uh, the fear of, you know, their peers or um, anything like that? Very good question, Dave. It's a very pertinent question. In fact, um, uh, even though my story is public knowledge, uh, a month ago, the, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, our regulating body, the, the, the the organization that gives our licenses to us and can suspend us at the drop of a hat. Um, uh, they have this monthly journal and it was on based on ment mental health and addiction and burnout. And, and I'm very honored to have co-authored a paper basically telling my story to the 40,000 doctors in Ontario that got delivered to them in this journal to their house last month in the hopes that people see that there is life after addiction in medicine right and they should get some help the vast there are lots and lots and lots of doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals that are in active addiction as we speak that do not get help because they're afraid of being reprimanded whether it's getting their license suspended and not being able to earn a living or getting losing their job in a hospital or uh, getting judged. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, when I, in early recovery, um, um, uh, I had to let go some of my patients that were on prescription drugs because I can't prescribe them anymore, right? And some of these people were legitimately on drugs that they needed. Right. These weren't addicts. These are people with chronic pain and they needed the stuff. They're on the ball. And I'd say, look, I can't prescribe as of this date. My my license is done with respect to narcotics. And they'd say, well, what, what, what are we going to do? And I'd be like, go find a doc and tell them the truth. Tell them that uh, I have a family doctor and he's an addict in recovery and he started with the physician's health program and he's given up his right to prescribe controlled substances and he's got a a, a, a restricted license, right? And tell them that you need a new doc. And this one lady came back about a month later and she looked very upset. She sat in my office and, and I said, hey, Linda, what's going on? She's like, you know, I did it. George, she goes, I did everything you told me to do. And I Googled this one doc and I thought she was perfect. And I sat in her office and I told her everything you told me to say. And when I told her about you, she said, oh, He's one of those doctors. And I'll tell you, not only did it hurt Linda's feelings because she cared about me, but it hurt my feelings. 
And these are people that are supposed to be trained in this stuff, that are supposed to understand. So there is a huge, huge um, stigma that we're trying to at least normalize a little bit. And by having people like me hopefully come out and say, hey guys, this is what happened to me. And this is where I'm at now. And really the only thing that happened to me was that I got my life back. And I wanted to be a, a doctor ever since I was a little kid and I still get to do it. I'm the luckiest guy in the world and I still get to do it and I'm an addict in recovery. Uh, but it's, it's and, and, and then the other thing that happened, Dave, is that to give you an idea, you'd think that my message went out to 40,000 doctors, right? Last month. The only people that reached out to me are people that already know me to congratulate me on the article. When I was in hospital for my multiple medical adventures, brain tumors and such, in two admissions, I had three doctors that were working in hospital approach me because they read on my chart that I was in recovery, asking for some help and some pointers, which was kind of cool, but that yeah. scares yeah. the, yeah, but you think about it, right? Right. How many people are suffering in silence? I think a ton. Yeah. And hopefully through forums like this, we can get the word out that, hey, you know, there is life after addiction. It's I find it really interesting that in person they were more willing to talk to you about it rather than, you know, kind of kind of write to you. Right. And have it in writing. Yeah. At, right. Yeah. In person, because it's just they, you know, they're not sending it anywhere. Yeah. It can't be traced. They don't know who's going to intercept the message, right? When they're sitting in the room and I'm like sick, right? But they feel comfortable. Oh my God, this is a living proof guy that he can be a doctor and in, in recovery, maybe he can give me some pointers. Yeah. Right. So it, the key is to keep helping, keep spreading the word. Keep. So when I have people in my life that start to get disillusioned with recovery. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What am I getting out of this? So you know what I'm doing it for? I'll tell you what I'm doing it for, a pretty good incentive. There's these two girls in my life, these two young women that have inherited my genes. They have a 50% higher risk of developing some kind of addiction, use disorder or mental illness. And I have an obligation to show these young women, my daughters, how to live life with my disease. That's a pretty good incentive. That's amazing. Right? That's how I try and justify it, right? You know, I could say, oh, my daughter's inherited my future genes and life is over. No, I have an obligation and I have an incentive to show Steph and Mel, here's my disease. Here's the Photopolis disease, one of many. And here's how to deal with it. And I'm going to show you as much as God lets me to show how to do it in the right, healthy way. With that, George, I guess, <clears throat> follow up, how, I mean, the stigma is still there, but how, uh, I guess, excited maybe are you, or um, I don't know what the right word is, but as far as like how the trend we're going in, as far as maybe back when your father was maybe suffering to yourself, to your, 
you know, your daughters and then future grandchildren. Like, do you think we're on the right path with um, breaking the stigma a bit? I think, thank you, Dave. Yeah, my old man, God bless him, never, never went to a meeting, never really found recovery. He was an old soldier, right? And, and when the doc finally said to him, John, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to not see your boys grow up, you better stop. He did. Like, he's one of these weird guys that actually stopped drinking when the doctor told him to stop drinking. I can't figure that one out, but hey, what, whatever. Never stopped smoking, but he stopped drinking, right? Uh, 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 so, I, I, you know, he never found recovery. I, I think it's, we're in the right direction. I really do. Um, we're, we're heading in the right direction. We need more forums like this to try and show people that, that they're not alone, right? If we can just reach one person suffering in silence, we've done our job. But the other thing I'm, I'm, I really believe is that we know very little about addiction disorder. That's the truth. The treatment for addiction disorders is archaic. It's, it's like a, a baby compared to heart surgery, diabetes treatment, all this other stuff. Maybe one day there's going to be this magic pill or this magic treatment that's going to cure our disease, right? Right now, it ain't it. We don't have it. So the treatment for addiction and substance use disorders that we have at our disposal, based on what we know right now in society... It's very simple things. Um, go to meetings. Live a simple, healthy, transparent, clean life full of dignity. Do some studies. Pray. Journal. Help people. Right? Um, if you need to do abstinence-based, like I do, if you need to do harm reduction medicine, there's lots of uh, harm reduction uh, uh, recovery. It's solid. It's, it's reasonable. Uh, I'm not saying just because I'm an a substance, uh, abstinence-based uh, recovery guy that I don't think that, that uh, uh, um, uh, uh, harm reduction isn't worth it. We're, we're moving along. We're growing. Uh, we're heading in the right direction. I have no doubt in my mind, Dave. Um, I think we're miles from where we need to be. But each journey starts with one step. And, and, and through forums like this, um, you know, uh, if somebody told me 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I would be, I don't even, you know, a Zoom meeting, what the heck's that 15 years ago, right? Forget that. But, you know, if somebody told me that I'm going to get together with a bunch of men that are, you know, younger than me and talk about our mutual disease and celebrate it, the recovery part of it, and try and spread the word of health and, 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 and accept mental health as a, a legitimate issue i wouldn't believe it yes jared um oh sorry so in in rehab i know like i never knew that addiction was a disease before that right and when i got to rehab then i started learning about it and it took me a little bit to actually understand it and realize that it was a disease when you were actively using were you aware that you had that disease? That's a good question, eh? Uh, uh, um, I, I used to carry a man purse. You remember <laughs> those things? 
Yeah. And I, I used to carry. fly a boat. You still have one, Dave? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Mark, you have one? Yeah? Yep. There you go. Put all your stuff in there, eh? <laughs> yep, you bet. So <laughs> so my man purse, you know what had what it had in it? I used to tell people I had all kinds of important things and all kinds of medical equipment and all kinds of things. You know what it had in it? Drugs. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was a trick question. No. <laughs> so here you go. Here I am, a graduate of U of T Medical School. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where the progress has happened. When I went to medical school, University of Toronto from 19, uh, 1986 to 1990, in four years of training, we had half an afternoon of education on alcoholism. Think about that. Three hours. Last year, I spent seven days talking to U of T students in addiction week at U of T. So we're moving forward. But I'll tell you, um, uh, drinking was part of being a doctor, man. Like drinking was part of being a medical student. Best parties I've ever had in my life was in medical school. <laughs> it's true. I'm not trying to celebrate it, but it's the truth. Absolutely. And it was just an extension into growing up older. And, and it, it just became uh, another substance. And, and, and uh, you know, um, it, it's, it's, if anybody knows me, they know how stubborn I am or how, I, how stubborn I was. And I'm a very intense human. And I study, I'm not a smart person. I'm a hard worker. My brother was a smart student in the family. I just worked hard. Uh, my brother was brilliant, is brilliant. For me to actually get to a state, Jared, where as a smart, educated human, you'd think that I would know better. And I didn't, and I kept it going. That's the power of our disease. Our disease is minimized as far as how dangerous it is. Unless there's people that can talk about it and spread the word about how bad it can be and how dangerous it is, uh, people don't realize how dangerous this thing is. And it's not only a disease of the sufferer, it affects everybody around us, right? All our family and our friends and it destroys communities and societies, right? So, yeah, you'd think that I would know better. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not Dr. Fotopoulos, Jared. I was that kid from Parkdale with dyslexia that was afraid of his own shadow. That's who I am. The doctor part, man, that, who's that? <laughs> right? I'm the kid from Parkdale that was afraid to get beat up. Right. And, 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 um, if that can answer it, maybe. Yeah. Great answer. Great question. I just don't think a lot of people know that it's an actual disease and, uh, it'd be nice if it was kind of out oh. there a bit more. Jared, I'll tell you, there are people that are very close to me, um, uh, and my family in my family that just, they don't get it. <laughs> 
they, they, they feel like, okay, I don't understand about addiction. Why don't people just stop? <laughs> and, and that, that is somebody that hasn't applied themselves to understanding how controlling and, and how pervasive and all inclusive this thing is. When it gets me, it permeates every fiber of my existence. It becomes me. Yeah, that's an amazing point. I was willing to, you know, put everything aside for my addiction. And I found finding out that it was a disease was almost like a weight lifted off my... Right. You know, right? <laughs> and it was just like, okay, now we can start moving forward. And I'll tell you the other thing that's huge about that definition that's so important, right? Uh, the recovering person, we talk about sh we talk about shame and guilt, right? And there's a big difference between shame and guilt. And a lot of people in recovery don't, so a lot of them don't even know about the difference between shame and guilt. And, and what I've been taught was I can recover with guilt. I can't recover with shame. I got to let go of shame. So I am guilty of making mistakes because of my illness. When I was in active addiction, I made a lot of mistakes. I'm guilty of that. And I have to pay the price, period. No options. Shame is a different ballgame. Guilt is I did wrong. Shame is I am bad. I'm a bad person. And we have to let go of that stuff. I'm not a bad person. We're not bad people. We're just sick. We're sick and we made mistakes and we have, we got to pay the price, right? Got to pay the price and we got to pay our dues, but we have to let go of the guilt. Uh, sorry, the shame. The shame will keep us from recovering. I had a question for you, George, um, just on, it just came up when you were talking about, you know, maybe there being a pill one day. And uh, I know for myself, how much I've learned about, you know, David since being in recovery, um, you know, besides maybe that pill stopping you from maybe hurting people or this and that, um, would you take that pill from how much you've learned about George through recovery? It's a good question, right? Um, I, I've taken medications and treatments for brain tumors and bowel obstructions and uh, all kinds of things that have happened to be medically, to me medically, that I needed these things to, to stay alive. Um, if we ever get to the point that there is a therapy that cures addiction, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to ever see that day uh, and not trying to be negative, right? <laughs> not trying to be cynical, but you got to remember where this thing is, right? If you start studying the neuroanatomy and the neurophysiology of addiction, you know where it is. It's in the limbic system. The limbic system is in the base of our skull. It's the primordial brain, the lizard brain. It's where it's where scent is. It's it's the it's the it's the it's where our breathing occurs. We don't know that much about it. We just know that it's there, right? And can you imagine developing a pill that would actually solve it? I would I take it. 
assuming that it was proven to be safe. Yeah. But I'll tell you something. You know, I'm addicted to a disease where I love more of anything, right? If somebody gave me a pill to take it and I, then all of a sudden I cannot live this and all of a sudden I'm okay to drink. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't trust myself that much. I, I'd rather stay the way I am. Yeah. It works for me now. I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. Can't tell you what's going to happen tonight, but I can tell you that up until now, this has worked for George. Um, and, and, uh, the pill is cool. It's a cool concept. Like I, I'm plugged into a lot of stuff now where we're learning a lot about things and chemicals and, and treatments. And we're learning about the brain big time. Uh, and it's some pretty amazing medicine that's coming out and discoveries, but we're not, we're not very, I, 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 I hope I'm proven wrong, uh, but I'm not going to see it. I don't think I'm going to see that pill and that's okay. I'll stick to my, I'll stick to my Diet Coke. <laughs> George, we had a uh, we had a nurse on here who works with an outpatient uh, addictions treatment program, and um, you know she made a comment about how when budget cuts happen, it's always like kind of sad to see where you know addictions and mental health they kind of get the first you know they kind of get chopped first. Do you do you kind of do you know why that is, or do you have a theory maybe? That's a good question, right? I, um, um, it's still, I'll tell you, these budget cuts, Mark, and these things that go on are done by politicians, right, usually. Yeah. And what do politicians do? They want to get reelected. Yeah. And, and how do they get reelected? By getting people to vote for them. And so it comes down to patient, to public education right the public has no clue about these diseases and how dangerous they are how how much they affect the world they're an epidemic like they're way more common than some medical problems right and nobody's doing anything about it and those are the first things that we cut i had a great conversation with mel my daughter melanie who who uh, is halfway through nurse practicing school she's a little bit like her old man that way and and, and she, you know, a couple of, a year ago or something, this rich family donated something like, I don't know, $10 million to the Center for Mental Health and Addiction, not that long ago. And it got this great publicity that this rich family donated $10 million. And Mel goes to me, that's nothing. With this problem, $10 million is not even a drop in the bucket. How about $100 billion? Now you're talking, right? <laughs> $10 million won't do anything. Now, every little bit helps. Yeah. But she understands, because of her old man's story, how complicated and expensive, but also how necessary it is to treat this thing. It might look great, $10 million bucks, but she knows you need like a million times that to make a difference. And I think the only way we can change that pattern, Mark, of budget cuts and making addiction and, 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 and mental health stuff more important is by educating the public, doing exactly what we're doing here. Absolutely. 
That was a great answer. You like that one? Yeah, that was awesome. That got me fired up. I thought that all by myself. Eh? Yeah, like that, that was. Oh yeah, that was sweet. <laughs> all right, guys. Do we have any more questions for George? I think I'm topped out right now, but I just I just want to thank you, George, and uh, for everything you're doing in the community. And um, but most importantly, you know, I can personally attest to uh, the two young, uh, awesome, beautiful, talented girls you you helped raise. And uh, I hope your I hope your son-in-law is not too much of a pain in the ass to you. He's one of my best. He's one of my best friends, and uh, he speaks highly, very highly of you. So uh, thanks for taking time for us today uh, Dave uh, guys it's, it was a huge honor and, and I'm humbled and, and uh, uh, my son-in-law who I, 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 I he's a son now he's not just a son-in-law and and, uh, and, and um, um, I, I'm he's one of the gifts of my recovery okay and, and, and uh, Dave you know my family and um, and I'm the luckiest guy in the world um, uh, but without recovery it wouldn't have happened. And so I'm humbled and I'm honored uh, to have been asked to share a little bit about my story. And, and, and like I said, I, I, if this can help just one person think of our, our disease and just a little bit different, right? Take it a little bit, a little bit of a different angle, not stereotype it. You know how many people in my life, when I tell them I'm an addict, they don't believe me? <laughs> They go, no, 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 an addict is a guy that's passed out on a park bench. Yeah. I'm like, no, you're looking at one. Yeah. <laughs> right? You're looking at an alcoholic. Oh, you're not an alcoholic. You, you know what? You want to hear the best? I still have people giving me booze for Christmas. Holy. It's true. Oh, yeah, but you're an alcoholic, but that's okay. Here's this bottle. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's so we got lots of work to do. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's okay. It, it, it's okay. Uh, it's baby steps. Let me tell you one big thing. One big lesson. I've learned many lessons in recovery, but one of the biggest ones that I've learned is in active addiction, I lost the trust of all the most important people in my life. In fact, nobody trusted me. Right. In active addiction, I lied. Like I said, I, I would lie when the truth would do. I made up for my shortcomings. I, I wanted to make up stories because I didn't. I didn't dare tell the people, tell the world what was happening to me. Right? I was ashamed, so I lied, and I lost the trust of everybody. And in recovery, I want that trust back. Anybody get that feeling? They want that trust back. They want people to trust them again. And 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 what I want is I want a barrel of trust, you know, a big barrel. I want to gain a barrel of trust, but I can only earn it a thimble at a time. So I have to be patient. You know, I have to be patient. That one thimble today, another thimble tomorrow, one day will earn that barrel of trust. You know, uh, somebody close to me, uh, uh, after I got my one-year medallion, I got my one-year medallion and Steph and Mel were there and, and it was great and I felt great. And, 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 and um, the next day, uh, this person called me and they're like, congratulations, George. 
you finally got this thing behind you. You can move <laughs> on with your life. And I said, you know what? I said, yeah, let me tell you something. I go, addiction and alcoholism, the natural history is relapse. You live long enough, you relapse if you don't play your cards right. And if you're not lucky, I said, in fact, let me tell you this. And I know this is very serious, but this is how I roll these days. Uh, 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 I said to this person, I said, if I die of something other than an alcohol or drug related problem, relapse, then you can carve on my tombstone that George had a successful recovery. Until then, it's one thimble at a time, and that's okay, because I'm still here to do it. And, and that's okay, right? That was awesome. Yeah, I like that. that eh? no, I made that yeah, one up too. Yeah, that was sweet. That one, that, yeah. that one kind of hits home to me because I left rehab knowing full well that I had to gain trust back and be patient. And uh, yeah, I just kind of got home and thought everything would just snap my finger and be back to normal. And it was far from that. So I'm still working on that every day. But well, I, I do, you know, the, the whole idea of me doing that five-year program right which is absolutely we need we have to have that we can't practice without it um um is to basically gain everybody's trust back professionally what's going on with this guy right is he what's he going to do here so trust is massive and uh um uh, you know a barrel of trust is what i want but i can only earn it a thimble at a time and that's all right I'll tell you why, because I've been given that incredible gift of being able to earn it. I've been shown the way. Now for me, it's just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep it simple. Keep doing the next right thing. And, and the big stuff will take care of itself. Uh, 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 but the trust one is a big one. Absolutely. George, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, George. Thank you. All right, thank guys. You guys. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Thank you guys very much for listening.